the roll and go. Where am I to go, meet Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more Where Am I to Go. First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I to Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast. And so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been. Also, I really am interested in listener feedback. I have an email address at whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear some of the listeners' comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do. I'm on kind of a limited travel schedule as far as uh, the way that I travel and where I go, but if there's something extremely interesting, I would definitely do my best to build a trip around it. And the last thing, and, and the latest thing, is that I now have a Patreon account where if you want to hear the podcast early, you can go to Patreon forward slash Lauren Alberts, sign up for three, five, ten, whatever dollars if you were willing to support what I do and help us with our travel expenses and some of that kind of stuff. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. But what we're going to do is right now I have several podcasts that are banked, I guess you could say. I'm on, I think, number... 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, and I've got close to 35 that I have waiting to go out. I only put out about every week because I want to be able to keep a nice steady stream and not have a point in time when we have to shut down like a lot of other podcasts do for season one, season two. I'd like to keep this thing going year-round. And I've been traveling quite a bit and have been hitting quite a few interesting places. We've been to a tattoo museum. We've been to the beach and have gone to several uh, tourist attractions there, an underground tour. We did a cannery tour. We've just done all kinds of things, and I would love for you to be able to hear those early. So if you sign up with the Patreon, as soon as my editor Steve gets these things ready to go out, they will be put up on the Patreon page. And again, I would really appreciate your support. Now that I've got those things out of the way, I hope to hear from you and I hope you keep on listening. And now, let's get on with the podcast. Today is a special treat. I've been trying to get this one for a while and Hans has finally said that he would be able to have some time today. He's been a very busy man. We are at the Dug Up Gun Museum in Cody, Wyoming. If you can imagine what a dug-up gun museum would be, uh, well, you're not going to have to imagine. We're going to take care of this today. This museum is really cool. It's not huge, but there is a lot of stuff here. And today we are here with Hans and... Uh, Eva Kurth. Eva Kurth. 
His wife. His wife. <laughs> and they are the they are the Sorry. owners of this museum. And Hans, it looks like, has been collecting for a long time. So let's let's get going with this, Hans. Uh, tell us about your museum a little bit, about how you started collecting and and uh, why you did what you've done here. Well, started collecting when I was a kid, about 38 years ago. And um, things just kind of added up and added up to the point where we decided to open a museum, which was uh, about 11 years ago. And what kind of gun did you start off with when you were a kid? Oh, Winchesters. They Is were... this something that you found when you were digging in your backyard in the sand pit? or No, going to gun shows, just found them laying around the gun shows. And, and it was, you found a rusty old gun that had been buried that somebody was selling? Yeah, people, uh, you know, people got them somehow through estates or collections or whatever. And um, eventually they filled their, way, filled their way through to the gun shows. And so, I mean, you've got lots of, how many guns do you have here? There's about 1,307 items in here, but that includes swords and bayonets and, you know, helmets and things like that too. So, Is this all of your collection? Yeah. Okay, so, so but I, I know that you're still actively buying. In fact, you said that you were, at a, that you were on an online auction here today even. Yeah, there, sometimes you come across them on online auctions or live auctions, uh, you know, antique shows and stores, gun shops, gun shows. And is there a market for this, for, for these items? Or, uh, I mean, are they high-dollar items or not high-dollar items? Well, they can be if, um, they can be if you take into effect, like, um, Civil War collections and uh, things like that. You know, some collectors, they collect, World War One, or they collect World War Two, or Indian Wars, or Civil Wars. So sometimes you fall into a crack like that, where you know you're up against other types of collectors from certain time periods. Okay. The thing I think so cool is these are all dug up guns. I mean, they're they're guns that have been in the earth. They're guns that have been uh, uh, maybe stored in chests, that are, that, and they're rusty. Most of them, uh, the wood items are, are fairly incomplete or, or in a pretty bad state of decay. But uh, you can see all of the iron and, and some of that kind of stuff with these guns. Uh, I just, it's fascinating. And, and how many he has is what's really fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of them from different time periods. And you uh, cover just about all time periods, don't you? Yeah, from the earliest of times to up to World War II is where we cut off. Uh, but yeah, they survive uh, better sometimes, you know, if they're found in walls or under floors, things like that, you find the wood. Uh, also, you'll see that there's a lot of them that have ivory, which survives, you know, pretty well, and the hard rubber grips. What's the oldest gun you've got here? I think are the we have two that are both the same model, uh, oddly enough, but they're 1763 French uh, service pistols that most likely came over for the French-Indian Wars. And they were found here on, on continental U.S.? Or? Yes. Uh, one was found on the East Coast, and the other was actually surprisingly found uh, in the Gold Rush country of California. Wow. And yeah, they're from so. 17 what? 63. Wow. So, for example... You know, they would have come over for the French-Indian Wars and then 
probably had been in the revolution, then possibly the War of 1812, and then, in that case, would have went all the way to California for the gold rush, you know, in 1849, and then been used there. Um, the other one could have uh, been used, you know, in the French-Indian Wars, War of 1812, or the Rev War, 1812, and also the Civil War, even. So. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of history when you think of how many hands it could have changed, obviously, and, and where it could have went to. And, and every single one of these guns has a little uh, plaque or, or a little uh, paper that goes with it that, that is uh, pretty well marked as far as what they are, kind of who found them, uh, what, what the make and model is of the gun. Is it pretty hard to identify these guns when you when they show up in in the rusted condition or the or the dug up condition or? Yeah, it it really can be. I, I mean, sometimes you you basically got got to look for the the overall shape and then caliber and, and kind of go from there, and you can you can start to narrow it down. But the thing is, is you'll see like here where they've cut barrels right off. You know, they've cut them down to the point where. That might throw off a you know a unsuspecting collector or someone who finds it. They might know not know what they're looking at. So Why it can be tough. Why would the barrel be cut off? Well, like these are trying to obviously turn into like a hideaway gun. You know, a lot of guys back in the old west times would carry a gun, a holster gun on their you know on their uh, waist, and then also one hidden away. Just if they were uh, you know dearmed, they they still had one kind of hidden. Okay. Well, let's let's start off over here on the other side and take a look at uh, at how uh, how you've got it displayed, how you kind of got it set up. You're starting off over here. It looks like with muzzle loaders and uh, some flint locks, some percussion, uh, muzzle loading rifles, pistols. You've got bayonets in here. You've got knives. Wow, that's an interesting looking knife there. Yeah, that's from the conquistadors. It's a, one of our oldest items. It's really pretty hard to date something like that. And we're looking at a knife that's probably, what, uh, blade on it's eight inches long. It's got, what kind of a handle? Is that a bone handle? or? It looks to be bone. Huh. What origin, uh, I couldn't tell you. But the Spanish were, you know, pretty dangerous people back at that time. And then some of these other guns... Uh, yeah, you've got bits and pieces and, and foam guns that are all muzzle loaders. These are the kind of things that would have been used by the mountain men, correct? Or probably and and plainsmen and, and and whatnot. A lot of these guns you can see they were styled for different purposes. You had longer muskets that were for hunting. Then you had stuff like this. This one here is a, a buggy rifle that which is an underhammer where the hammer is underneath of the barrel instead of being on top, which was kind of a a, a fad or a craze for gun makers in the early 1800s. Which, what would have been the purpose for that? I've seen just, those before, but I, I've never really understood. It seems like it'd be harder to keep your percussion cap. Well, that's the problem. Attached. That's the problem. I mean, you know, if you had to pull the gun out for whatever reason, you cock it and the cap could just fall off onto the ground. So eventually they got away from that. But, you know, gravity is just something you can't compete with. Right. And then you've got a picture of a of a, a newspaper article up here, where there's a guy standing next to a tree, 
and there is a gun sticking through the middle of the tree, uh, probably up 10 feet high. Yeah, and the, the tree looks like it's maybe six inches round. You got barrel and stock sticking out both sides. I wonder how in the world he got that gun in the tree like that. Well, if you look close, you'll see that it's a, it actually is a fork. It's hard to tell, but it is a fork of a tree. Okay. And so it's set in the fork, and that's how that one there was found, the one from California. Okay, yeah. Found he's by got, loggers. He's got another one that, that is an actual piece of a, of a gun that uh, you can see a tree had grown around. And the stock sticking out one side, the trigger and, and trigger guard area and all that is inside of the, the tree. And it was found with some Spanish coins, it says. Yeah, the coins and, the, and those keys. So, but it's hard to say. I mean, the same, you know, people were traveling over the same areas for, for hundreds of years. So it's hard to say if they're related or not related. They said in the story, the original story, they said that it's related. But you know, I, there's no way I could tell that. Yeah, how could how how could you tell this many yeah. years later? You've got another cabinet here. Everything is in glass cabinets that, uh, that are sitting up, and they are uh, very easy to see. Yeah, I mean, you, they're up close to you, uh, and and very easy to identify. Of course, like I said, the the papers that are there. Uh, have all of the descriptions of, of what each one of these guns are. Now you've got a pepper box here. That's one that has several different barrels, uh, and the barrels rotate on that, like on this one here, correct? That's, that's right. They're, they were like a regular revolver that usually, you know, for the most part, were all double action. They had heavy, heavy trigger pulls that, uh, you know, they just tended to be inaccurate guns. And also they're made from cast steel, so if you look at that, barrel cluster Ooh. on that one it blew up you know yeah that's probably why that one got thrown away that's that's interesting well you wonder where the chunk of metal went i mean yeah wouldn't be good to get hit with something like that no and, and what we're looking at is a is a pistol that they call a pepper box uh you can look them up on uh google and see what what it would look like if if you're wanting to see what they actually look like but there's it's a big round cylinder barrel with this one looks like it's got uh seven or eight holes and you turn the barrel with with well they they would turn automatically oh, they would as, turn as you just yeah. like a revolver just yeah just like a revolver but instead of having like how we think you know now with the cylinder and one stationary barrel back then it was just sort of six barrels that would turn and and fire sing you know singly but um they did make them Four shot, five shot, six shot, you know, all types of shots. I mean, they had revolvers up to 16 shots. You know. And this one, this pepper box uh, that we're looking at in particular has a chunk of metal blown out the side that would be two of the, of the chambers or the, or the barrels that have blown out and left a pretty good-sized chunk of metal someplace. Yeah, and that's something that getting into, like we're, you know, as, as we're walking along here, we're going to get into the Civil War section, which when you look at it, you know, there's virtually no statistics on accidental discharges or accidents with firearms. And, uh, you know, most casualties are, are listed on the, the battle reports and things just as casualties. And they don't say, you know, how did these people die? Because they certainly weren't, you know just all dying in, in battle from uh, 
enemy fire. I'm sure there's lots that died from friendly fire and accidental uh, discharges and accidents because there, there's several several guns with blown cylinders, blown barrels. You know, the guns were good, but they weren't like John Wayne good, you know. Right. And then in this case, back over here, we have Revolution, or, uh, yeah, the Revolutionary War, War of Independence uh, firearms. We've got some really nice swords in here, too. How in the world did these people lose these things? I mean, you know, a, a gun would have been like a pretty handy tool to have had. It, it's it's hard to imagine somebody just, well, we have a hard time with our cell phones, I guess, but we keep pretty dang good track of them, and yet these guys right. are losing guns. Well, what we forget is that, you know, people could die from infections really easy. Um, other things like a bee sting, snake bite, maybe even a, you know, a bad tooth. We take it for granted that we have the quick fix for all this stuff back at that time. They could have just literally set the gun down and just died right there. So. I never even thought about that. But And a lot of people were alone all the time. I mean, you know, it, the explorers and stuff were out doing a lot of dangerous things on their own. Right. I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it. Yeah. We even got a five-pound cannonball in here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, and the thing t is also a lot of people ask me, is, well, why wouldn't these people pick the guns up? You know, because if they're worth money and hard to get, why wouldn't they take one? But you have to remember that, you know, the, the people – you know, the men were a lot smaller back then. So if you're a 110, 120-pound guy, tops, and the gun is a 10-pound gun or 12-pound gun, then that's 10% of your own body weight. So that'd be like today, you know, carrying a 25-pound weapon or something if you're 250 pounds. It, 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 you know, you, you wouldn't want to have another one. And not only did you have to have, you know, if you took the, the gun, you had to have the powder flask, the, the bullet mold, the balls, the caps, or the flints, or it goes on and on. You had all these accoutrements that would weigh you down. And so it became a real question of how many guns do you actually need? Right. Yeah. Now we're getting into the gold rush era. Mm -hmm. Which is a blend of guns and, and places. There's a lot of California stuff in here, this is obviously. But some, some uh, you know, South Dakota, Black Hills. Uh, guns. This is a real interesting case. He's got a couple of gold pans in here, uh, kind of a sand background uh, to replicate. He's got some arrowheads, some coins, a couple of uh, crosses on, on beads uh, for necklace. Just lots and lots of stuff. You got some buttons down here. Are those pewter buttons? They look pewter. Uh, they could be. Well, actually, those are coins. Oh, those are coins? They are. Yeah, they're coins. And if you notice, it's got a hole drilled in it. And they're actually more like a dog tag. People would stamp their you know, place of birth and a date so that they you know, would maybe know when they were born or where they were born. It, it, there was really no birth records back then. What kind of coins were these? What nationality? They're they're U.S. coins. They're, they're US early coins. coins. Mm -hmm. Wow! Well, I believe I think they're from the eighteen twenties or something like that. And these coins, they look like a like a washer that you would put on a bolt, and then they've got a little uh, bar going through where those, the hole is. Yeah, those are cuff weights, but they could actually be used as as buttons as well. So they're a multi-use uh, little lead 
thing. We I think, were looking at the coins. I, yeah, sorry, I was looking at the okay, coins. We were I see what you're looking at now. Things. Okay. Yeah, those so. are cuff weights. So they would sew them into cuffs, you know, on your on your hems to keep your your pants hanging down, or uh, they could use them as a button, or they could melt them into bullets. They were used for a lot of things, and you'll notice that in this case here, you'll see that there's a lot of thimbles, and there's even a button hook. You know, men used to have to know how to sew back then. You know, it wasn't such a sort of sexist thing like the 1950s where, you know, right. every woman stuck at home uh, sewing, you know. This was, everybody had to do, know how to do everything. Women would have to know how to shoot and clean a deer. Men would have to know how to sew. You know, everybody had to know how to cook. So A lot more self-reliance. But, well, you know, when you got out west, the, the, the ratio of men to women was, was pretty high to men to no women. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so expecting, expecting that to be done for you would be, would be pretty rough. And then you've got the Civil War. Yeah, we have a pretty extensive Civil War collection. A lot of different styles and makers uh, represented. I would imagine that the Civil War stuff would maybe be somewhat more accessible just because it was a war that was fought on our soil and so many uh, casualties and that type of stuff that went with it that I'm sure that a lot of those battlefields are just littered with, with old firearms. Yeah, there's probably tons and tons of guns still buried. Um, you know, people were wounded and would run off and... It's hard to say where they could expire, uh, and certainly the battlefields after these battles were littered with guns. I know Gettysburg had uh, nearly 16,000 guns laying on the battlefield after the battle. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot there. And, and, uh, and some of these guns, I've noticed, still have the cartridges inside of the cylinders. Yeah, the ball, you'll see the, the, the bullets, you know, primarily balls, but um, there are some cartridge guns. You know, cartridges were out, uh, you know, in time for the Civil War. The, uh, there were several different, you know, the twenty two was a, was a popular cartridge during the Civil War just for personal defense. And then you had a bunch of the big rim fires like the Spencer and the Maynard and different, you know, these different cartridges that uh, actually had like a cartridge, like a casing like we think of today. Yeah, and you can still see them when you're when you're looking at these rusted guns. You can still see the the balls or the projectiles inside of the cylinders. It's yeah, this one's still brutal. loaded and cocked. Oh, and it's cocked too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, kind of odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. You got a couple of belt buckles and all kinds of Civil War stuff in here. Swords. Uh, man, just. Bayonets. Now that's an interesting bayonet. It's got a corkscrew twist on the end. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope that they weren't using that as a weapon. You can see where it was on a barrel that burst. You see that how it right. blew up. So it was probably trash, and I think that they took it, and heated it up, and put that sort of spiral tip on it. I think that they were using it like a Yankee screwdriver, but but to clean the uh, touch hole on the cannon. Okay. I, th I would think. I would just guess, you know. But, okay, so but it looks sinister. It's tool. It, it <laughs> yeah. looks really sinister. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people look at that one. It's kind of neat. And you'll see a lot of handmade uh, 
fighting knives. You know, a lot of them fashioned out of swords and whatnot. Here's a knuckle knife. It's even got a oh, tendon yeah. tendon cutter on the top of the blade. And it looks kind of like a set of brass knuckles with a with a knife blade coming out, but the mm-hmm. brass part is not deteriorated at all. Whereas the blade on the knife is is actually quite pitted and rusted and yeah and deteriorated. And you've got. But there's some the iconic sword. iconic guns. I mean, you got the Colts and Remingtons, but there's other guns like this Ballard rifle. You know, a lot of people might not realize that they were out in time for the the Civil War. Wow. You got a stirrup in here for from uh, probably a McClellan saddle. I don't know. There's all kinds of... Here's a, a spur that's pretty mangled up, too. Oh, kind yeah. of makes you wonder what happened there. The, the, the thing that's interesting is every single one of these guns, I'm sure, has a story that would be just fascinating to, to hear. And yet, it's all been buried and, and lost. Yeah, that's right. Other than, other than now it's found and on display. Yeah, is, you got to be the judge. So cool. you got to be the judge of what happened. There's a musket there that was actually struck by a, a mini oh. ball. Was that, was that lead uh, ball still in it? No, it just has the hole, but okay. it was definitely struck by a projectile. Yeah, you can which see it. Which I'm sure happened a lot, you know. But Right. Wow. I mean, you've got some... Uh... Now, what's grape shot? They were essentially just, you know, cast steel balls that were uh, inside of a, a canister that would look something similar to like a, just say like a coffee can uh, that would be shot out of cannon like a giant shotgun. Okay. Uh, they had more sophisticated. These these things are like three quarters of an inch round, and then you've got one here that's probably an inch round anyway. And yeah. They, so they had several of those balls inside of that canister. Right. Wow, that had to have been just vicious. Well, that's what uh, happened with uh, Pickett's charge. You know, at Gettysburg, they lost uh, just over six thousand men in about ten minutes to that type of warfare. Wow. There's more of them there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've got, what, probably 15 or 20 of those. All different sizes, too, from uh, some of those are probably, what, uh, three-eighths of an inch round on up to mm-hmm. inch round. Yeah. And then some more belt buckles and some uh, a bit, an old bit for a horse, a couple of cartridges. Yeah, these are the some iconic guns. You have the Spencer carbine and a Maynard carbine. They had to... Pretty strange looking shell. You can see there's a shell there. You have some really rare guns that that have been dug up as far as uh, the makes and the styles. Or yeah, we do. And actually, there's one here that is exceedingly rare. It's a fully engraved Henry rifle. That would have been, uh, you know, a lot of money new. A lot of money new. Uh, someone maybe like Grant or you know maybe Lincoln. You know, someone like that would have that type of firearm. It's not something that the average person could go and buy. That's amazing that somebody would leave that behind. <laughs> well, I'm sure not willingly. Yeah. Wow. But there's it's a few other... nice engraving. This one here is all engraved. It's a real true gunfighter gun. And then there's a, the other rare guns. There's a fluted Colt Army, 1860 Army, which is, you know, they're not too common. Uh, this carbine here is a... Uh, Colt revolving carbine in 56 caliber, and 
they only made about 250 of them in that barrel length and model. So pretty rare. There's other things here. There's a few different uh, belt buckles hit by bullets. There's a Colt barrel with the bullet stuck in it. You can see the yeah. bullet hang, the, hanged the up. Of the barrel, you can mm -hmm. see the bullet sitting there. These bullets up here, you'll see all the teeth marks in them. Uh -huh. Those are what they call pain bullets. That's what uh, surgeons used to give you to bite on when oh. they did your amputation during the Civil War. Really? Mm -hmm. That's where that saying I mean, comes I've from. I've always heard, bite the bullet. That's where the saying comes from. Those we guys know. were biting dang hard on that. They sure were. <laughs> And wow. they would reuse them as well, you know, so that's why there's so many teeth marks. And then we're looking at, at bullets that are probably 45 caliber, half-inch round, yeah, approximately, at that, that would have been lead. And there's all kinds of teeth marks. In fact, they're even kind of de deformed where they were bit on so hard. It's just amazing to see this. And all of these guns, like, like we were saying, you know, the, they're, they're here... They're rusty. The one that he was talking about that was engraved, the barrel is, is badly rusted. You can see the engraving on the uh, action part of it, and the stock is all all gone. It's gone. just not yep. there. The wood is the wood is completely deteriorated. But these guns are all on display very, very nicely. And, and wow, look at this pistol. It's got a barrel on it that's 18 inches long or, or better. Yeah, it was probably a rifle that they converted into a pistol, but but it's pretty odd. It is. That is really cool. And it doesn't seem to be in terribly bad. I mean, you wouldn't want to go out and fire it, but it's not in uh, horrible Terrible. bad condition. It's, That's right. It's got the wood uh, hand grip and everything still there. And then we cover the Indian Wars. And some guns from that period of time. Again, we have lots and lots of guns in here. Uh, yeah. Just mo this, mostly pistols. And I can understand how you could lose a pistol pretty easy. Well, a lot of riding, you know, on the planes. They probably, you know, some of them flew out of holsters, I'm sure. But other ones like this one didn't. This is partly, yep. partly loaded and still cocked. This one here, you can see the percussion cap still on it. Oh, yeah. You know, so they were they were out there being used. Wow. But uh, what the interesting part is, you do start to see, as times uh, progressed, you start to see the Civil War guns still being used. You know, well into the time where cartridges are are, are mainstay. You know. Well, yeah. And I, I guess that's still. True today. I mean, some of your your most popular hunting firearms are still the pre fifty four Winchesters and and some of that kind of stuff to where they're the most highly desired. Sure. Well, yeah, so, people are still shooting deer with three hundred three British rifles from World War Two. I mean, right. Yeah. So it's kind of as long like as that. they're functional and they're kept up, it's it's all good. So you can't. I mean, why would they? Why would they get rid of something that's been working for them for? That's right. Forever. Wow. And we still have more displays here with the Indian Wars. Lots of it looks like the cartridge was was coming into to play kind of heavy here. You've got several spent cartridges and an old bugle. Yeah, that must have been from the cavalry. <laughs> well, they say actually it's from uh, Pancho Villa's army. Oh, really? Believe it or not, yeah, that and the gun okay. came together. So yeah, it, there's a, there's a lot of different things that. 
that uh, were going on in these times, kind of. And something else is on the walls. He has displays from all of these uh, or, or pictures, like Civil War pictures, Civil War camp, some of that kind of stuff. Uh, we're getting into the gunfighters now, or the old west, and uh, he's got several of the gunfighters up here: Wild Bill Hickok and and. Oh, several wanted posters and some of that along with the displays. Now, the Old West here, you've got some interesting things in here besides just guns. You've got an old fork. That that looks like it was a hand-forged fork, doesn't it? Yeah, that sure is. 1870s, 60s. And a Big Ben chewing tobacco can. And just a lot of, again, these ivory grips look like they've held up really, really well. Yeah, they were uh, they were definitely uh, expensive back at that time. And we're still here. Oh, we've got a shotgun, an old double barrel shotgun that still has the the shotgun shells in them. Now, these shotgun shells were they brass at this point in time? Yeah, they would be the full brass shells. Instead, and and as time went on, they they went into paper and wax, and then they right. evolved into plastic. But these ones here probably were the old brass ones. Right, they're brass, and they were they were a little bit shorter than our standard uh, shells today. You know, they were two and a half inch chambers usually. Okay. Uh, but you'll see them. Here's some over here in this gun belt. Oh, see, okay. still has them. Yeah, he's got a couple of uh, double barrel shotguns in here, and then a uh, 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 belt. Uh, uh, Shotgun holding, shell holding belt. I can't remember what you just called that. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, all shapes and sizes. You've got some little tiny, tiny little 22s. Tiny. Boy, those are really small. Yep. And then, you know, a lot of, a lot of the forty four caliber handguns and, and forty five caliber, you know, the big caliber guns. And then you'll start seeing the, the models of... Of guns, especially like with the Winchesters, you start seeing like the 1876s and the 1886s the models, and, and the calibers get so big. I mean, it, you know, 5095 or 4560. You know, they started making some real big, uh, big game kind of calibers for the. Now, when you're talking about, you you, you say uh, 4560 caliber for, or. Uh... What was the other big one back then? Forty-five seventy. Mm -hmm. The forty-five was the caliber, the size of the bullet, right? Right. And what the forty-five would be would be just a little under .5 or fifty caliber, which would be just a little bit under a half inch. That's right. Yeah, and, more or less. And then, and then the second number connotates how many grains of powder black powder been, that's right would have been in the shell. So a forty-five right. seventy would have been forty-five caliber with seventy grains of black powder. That's right. But, but there were companies that still ran the numbers the other way around like Maynard for example you know they'd they'd run the the powder charge first and then the caliber so it could kind of throw you off there was a lot of confusion with calibers back at this time you know I mean just just because something said 44 you, you know it could be a 4440 it could be a 44 Evans it could be a 44 Russian it could be a 44 so, Webley, it yeah. so it wasn't necessarily standardized. Standardized, wow. right? And so, for people that couldn't read or write, which a lot of people couldn't read or write, you know that that is another reason that uh, you could see so many guns that blew up and had problems because they were using the wrong 
ammunition. You know, just because it fits doesn't mean that it's the right it, ammo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when it goes out the barrel, it's not gonna, everything's not going to go the way it's supposed to. Or if it gets jammed up in the barrel and you run another one out, it's not going to. Just like that. There you go. You can see where that guy probably lost a hand. Yeah, yeah, the whole bottom least. end of the barrel is all completely blown out. Wow. Where, you know, this an accident like that could be... Uh, life-threatening we're still over here in the old west again you've got some spurs some more double barrel shotguns some real heavy barreled uh that looks like it's what 36 caliber maybe and yeah it's about a 36 or 38 caliber but that barrel is thick it's, it is yeah it's it was, a it's actually a that be that would have been a high-end you know hunting or target rifle uh, you can see where it had it was set up for a, what they call a false muzzle. The false muzzle would only fit in there. You see how it has the holes. Right. The false muzzle was a like a section of the barrel that had pins that would fit into that uh, pattern for the holes. And then as you you know as you pushed the ball down into the barrel to load it, that excess lead would be shaved off, and you could pull that fa false muzzle off, and the ball was already into the barrel which, you know, and seed it in there nicely, and you'd, you'd uh, pack it all the way down in there. It just it made for accurizing, and uh, it's something that you don't see on every every uh, muzzle loader. And the heavier barrel would have, would have been beneficial for the accuracy also. Right. I can't imagine trying to carry that. That thing's got to weigh a ton. Pretty heavy. We've got more guns from the Old West. Again, these here are probably fairly common, kind of like the the Civil War stuff, just because there's so much area and, and the cowboys and all of that were carrying firearms at the time. And Yeah, but there still you get such a variation of calibers and every company is trying to come up with the next best thing. And uh, it made it tough for people. There were a lot of manufacturers of firearms back then too, wasn't there? A lot, yeah. They, a lot of the big companies would end up buying out smaller ones, or you know, buying them and shutting them down because they were competition. I've even seen old Sears Roebuck catalogs where you could buy a twenty-two rifle for five ninety-five or something. <laughs> yeah, that's how they did it. In fact, they even gave guns away. They give you a, a gun with a, a bag of seed or whatever, you know. All types of promotional things. There's a Winchester that exploded. Oh, yeah. That would have been a fatal explosion. Yeah. Oh, man. Just fascinating. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, a lot of history. There's guns from Deadwood, and uh, there's one there found near Bell Stars, home in Oklahoma. Oh, really? Mm hmm. Just miles. She, she could have shot that one, huh? Well, who knows? <laughs> All I can tell you is it was found uh, near her place. Wow. And then we've got turn of the century. So yeah, this is kind of like 1900, you know, 19, you know, 05 or 10, something like that. And you see guns start to change. You see a lot more double action revolvers. Okay, now um, double action. Let's talk double action to single action for people that don't really understand. A single action, you have to pull the hammer back every time you're going to pull the trigger. Correct. In order to make it fire. A double action, you can pull the trigger and the hammer will come back automatically and then release. Right. And double action, in my experience, 
is not nearly as accurate as using it like a single action just because the whole pull of, of getting that trigger to come back is a really stiff trigger pull before it drops down. Yeah, that's right. But uh, it can be handy in certain situations. There, There's a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there's a few gunfights that uh, guys had used double action revolvers and it, you know, it uh, weighed in their favor. So Yeah, because you're not having to pull that hammer back. Right. There's a couple of them that are just double action only. You know, so you don't have the option to cock the hammer. They're just strictly a double-action right. pocket gun. There you, is no hammer on that's it at right. all. So, right. yeah, you just pull the trigger. And it... you see that on a lot of just the pocket guns. So the hammer wouldn't get hung up when you pulled it out of a pocket. Uh, you know, it was kind of a speed speed thing. Now, this is really interesting. You've got a, a homemade Mexican pepper box, approximately 50 caliber. And this thing's, the cylinder on it yeah. is probably two inches in diameter. The handle is huge. You, how in the world would a person with normal size hands even hold that thing? Wow. It's not overly long. It's the, the barrel itself is only, what, probably four inches long? Right. And it's, it's a percussion, which means it takes a cap and the hammer comes down, but... This is just a, a massively interesting looking gun. Yeah, it's a, it's it. an ugly old gun, but it but it's it's huge and everybody sees it and everybody loves it. It is cool. But I couldn't imagine trying to fire something like that. Wow. Yep. And then we got the roaring twenties. Yeah, these are all sort of twenties and I guess thirties, maybe kinda guns but you see a lot of crime type guns like this shotgun where they cut the stock off and cut the barrel off you know it's a, a model 1897 winchester and then you see other you know other guns like this that are your typical sort of law enforcement guns that are still loaded um but there's there's a lot of them that are real strange this they, one here they started coming into the semi-autos at this point in time it looks like. Yeah, the early. I'm not seeing many semi-autos until. No, yeah, they start. Years. They start coming out about this time. Um, well, and earlier, but but people were hesitant to buy them. You know, the revolvers were still seen as the as the, the the gun of choice. Now this one's real interesting. The barrel is turned at a ninety degree angle. I well, wonder what he was trying to open with that. Well, I'll tell you that gun there was actually dredged up out of the Chicago River. At, uh, in Chicago by the Coast Guard in 1945. And what they did with that was they took the cylinder out and threw it away, and they hit that gun with an axe or something like that, probably just to make it so, you know, to it was probably a crime gun. They were trying to make it so law enforcement couldn't do anything with it and threw it in the river. Wow. Yeah, this one here was found under a small bridge by the... Uh, police in St. Louis, you know, and uh, they held on to it in their evidence room for a long time. And they said they all knew that it probably did something, but they couldn't prove any of it. Huh. Yep. And then we come back over to World War One. Yep. And you've got a lot of World War One firearms. And where were most of these found? Over in Europe or... Yeah, most of them were, uh, you know, guys brought them back either, you know, after World War II even, they were bringing them back and different things. Farmers plow them up and 
everything. That one there was uh, was hanging in a VFW until they shut it down. That's a World War One machine gun. It was actually struck by a bullet in the grips. Wow. Yeah, it's a Maxim. Those guns uh, pretty much changed the world. Pretty neat gun. Is that liquid cooled? Is that why that barrel is so big? Right, they were water cooled, and they water. use a cotton loom belt. That's actually the water can right there. Okay. And it would, you know, they had hoses that would cycle the water through and keep it cool. You've got a couple of grenades in here, and again some bayonets, and I'm I'm sure that there's probably still lots of. Uh, World War One and World War Two firearms that are to be dug up uh, from all the fields uh, all over the world. I mean, you had them out in the Pacific Islands. You had them uh, over in Europe and and Russia and kind yeah, of everywhere. I've, yeah, I've talked to I've talked to a lot of people that were you know in the military stationed in the South Pacific that say that there's still all kinds of stuff in caves and you know in the in the ocean in the bays and things. And then you've got a couple of military helmets that look like they have uh, the head that was inside of them wasn't in very good shape when it got through. Right. Yeah, they Several didn't offer. Holes in them and, they didn't offer a lot of protection, but but you'll see how weapons, you know, in, in some cases they got really sophisticated. In other cases, they were pretty crude, like this Russian hand grenade. You know, it looks like a can of beans with a handle. Right. Not something I'd want to run around in circles with. Then you've got another one here with a little wood handle. And yeah, the German grenade. hand grenades. There's a 1911 Colt that, oh, really? that blew up. You can see it still has a round stovepipe in it. Yep. So even some of the best guns will have malfunctions. Now we've kind of gone through this fairly quick as far mm -hmm. as, as what you've got. A person who looks like you, if you wanted to read everything and see where these came from. You could spend hours in here easily. What's what's the usual time that your that your visitors spend? Well, I guess it depends on if they're you know gun enthusiasts or just trying to look at some history or or or, or what. But I'd say you could spend easily a half an hour to a couple hours if you want to read everything. And and your uh, museum, the cost to get in is. We just run by donation. We got a box here at the end. Uh, that's how we how we've been doing it for the past bunch of years. So it makes it fair for every uh, family to come in. Wow, you can't beat that for a price. And you're usually open just during the summer months when Cody's tourist season's going, or right? Yeah, typically, you know, the end of May, sort of mid May through uh, to end of September. This year, you know, it's a kind of into October, of course, the you know we had a late start because of the COVID. So, okay, and you've got a website. Yeah, it's uh, Cody Dug Up Gun Museum. That's right. Yeah, www.codydugupgunmuseum.com. Dot com. And do you have a gallery where people can see some of this, or we do. We have a, a new website. It's uh, still working some of the uh, little bugs out, but we do have a gallery and uh, through memberships. On uh, the website, you'll be able to have access to expanded galleries and newsletters and, uh, you know, up-and-coming projects and things like that, too. So, so something to check out.
And if people have something like this in their basement from an estate or something like that that they're looking to donate, you take donations or uh, yeah, that's buy, right. Are you a buyer? Or? Well, we yeah we buy and sell antique uh, guns and different things. You know, military, uh, you know, swords, helmets, bayonets, all that kind of stuff. And we do take uh, you know pretty much any kind of guns on uh, donation, whether we can use them or not. We can always do something with them. So. So it's a, it's an option for people. Not everybody, you know, people inherit guns and they don't want to keep them sometimes. Right. You know, you'd be surprised. Some people don't want them in the house. Some people don't want the association with a war or or whatever. And uh, that's their choice. So if they don't want them, they were always accepting stuff. Good. So that's that's the place to, to donate something that, that may be someplace that you that you have no more attachment to. That's right. So, okay. Well, Hans, I greatly appreciate you doing this podcast with us. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. I love your museum. Uh, I've been here several different times. And like I said, the first, when I first heard Cody dug up gun museum, I'm going, what the hell is that? Who wants to go see a bunch of dug up guns? I show up here, I walk around, and I look, and I'm going, I do. I want to see dug up guns. This is one of the most unusual museums that I've been to. So, uh, again, I appreciate your time and, and taking it with us. I hope people will take the time and effort to come here, take a look at what Hans has put together. And, uh, uh, I just want to finish out by saying the world is full of wonder. Everybody needs to get out and explore. That's true. And have a wonder filled day. All the rolling go. To go meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?